You ever met someone who's jealous? Ever encountered that? Seen the obsession that overtakes their life? Maybe seen the rage and wrath that fills their heart? The boiling over sometimes into destructive forces, not only in the lives of others, but in their own life. You ever encountered something like that? The Bible says in Proverbs 27, wrath is cruel and anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? It implies there's a level of anger and wrath that's almost beyond compare when it comes to the issue of jealousy. So it's interesting that as God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, out of bondage, and was taking them into the promised land, it was interesting that he said to them, in one of his first statements on the mount uh, when he was giving the law, he introduces himself as, I, the Lord, your God, a jealous God. He wanted to establish very clearly in their minds that notion that he is jealous. Later on, he'd say to Moses on that same mountain, the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. He's jealous. That's the question is, what's he jealous about? What makes him jealous? Well, spelled out for us. Pretty clearly in Scripture, Ezekiel 39, God says, I will be jealous for my holy name. So God is bringing up this image of rage and wrath and obsession. But He says He is directing it at what? At His holy name. Or we might say at His own glory. He says in a number of places, like Isaiah 42, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory, I will not give to another. He says in Isaiah 48, for my own sake, for my own sake, I act or I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So God declares that he is jealous and what he's jealous for, he says, is his own glory. He's jealous for his own holy name. So we normally think about jealousy as a vice, as something wretched and to be avoided, but in the proper context and for the proper thing, jealousy is altogether a good and right and just thing. As a matter of fact, if you had some marriage relationship and there was the intrusion of some adulterer into that home, we would think it odd if there were no jealousy, right? We would think something was not right. So when God says that he's jealous, this is a a character, uh, this is part of his virtue the fact that he is guarding and he is, he is uh, protecting that which is valuable and right and just, which he says is his holy name, his glory. Because whether you realize it or not, God's glory is the greatest thing that you could ever seek. God's glory is the greatest thing that you'll ever find to satisfy you. God's glory is the most beautiful thing that you'd ever set your gaze upon. And so for God to be jealous for His holy name is simply for Him to be jealous for that which is best suited 
and best serves the needs of everyone in the entire universe. Now this is really the thing that drives the Apostle Paul in all that he says to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I invite you to turn in your Bibles back to that chapter we've been looking at. Uh, we started looking at last week. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 18 through 25. Do we have the slides? First Corinthians 1, Paul says here, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see here very clearly what Paul's driving at. He's driving at a commitment that he had for the preaching, the exclusive preaching of the cross of Christ, because it is the thing which guards the glory of God more than all. He wanted to guard the fact that God and His name and His glory would be exalted in the preaching of the gospel. As a matter of fact, remember, this is all an explanation of a statement he said back in verse 17 when he says, Christ sent me to preach the gospel not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So he's explaining to us, in essence, why he committed himself to preaching the exclusive gospel, the exclusive message of the cross, and nothing else. By the way, when he says that he's preaching the exclusive message of the cross, I mentioned this last week, but just wanted to touch it again. He's not saying that week after week, all he did was tell the simple story of salvation, the story of crucifixion, because his goal every week wasn't just to get people to come down an aisle or to pray a prayer of salvation or get them to come to Jesus. Some people might use this verse for that justification, turning their churches into evangelistic crusades every week, the same message, the same simple gospel message over and over again. That's all that many churches ever hear. They never really go beyond that 
maybe looking at this verse as their mandate, but in fact, in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 1, Paul laments the fact that he could never serve what he calls solid food. That is deeper theology to this church. He had to He had to reserve himself to feeding them only the baby food of milk. And he said that is lamentable. They never really got beyond the basics. And he said that's not right. That's an evidence of your worldliness and your fleshliness. So when Paul says, look, I preach nothing but the cross of Christ. He's not saying that all I did was give them the basic gospel message over and over and over again, the message of salvation. What he's talking about is the cross of Christ with all of its theological implications into all of life. As a matter of fact, if you look at chapter 2, verse 6, he spells this out because after going through a while and saying, I don't preach the wisdom of the world, I don't preach the wisdom of the world, he comes back with a point of clarification in verse 6 of chapter 2. He says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. It's just not a wisdom of this world, he says. Or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. We impart a wisdom, he says. We do impart deep and profound thoughts. We impart all that God gives us. As a matter of fact, he goes on. Chapter 2 is basically an explanation or expounding of what this wisdom is. And you'll go down to verse 10 and he'll talk about the things which God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. He says in verse 12, We've received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who's from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God, and we impart this in words. Not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. You know what he's talking about there? He's talking about inspiration. He's talking about the the act where God gave to the apostles and to the prophets divine inspiration, and they imparted what they received through the Spirit of God to us. So in other words, when Paul says, look, I determined to know nothing among you except the gospel, the cross of Christ, what he's saying is, I determined to know nothing among you except what was revealed in the Word of God. I determined to know nothing among you except the Word of the cross, the Word of the gospel, the Word of God. Now in some way and in some form, something was going on at Corinth where they were questioning that, compromising that, or whatever it might be. They were attempting in some way to co-opt the wisdom of the world under the banner or label of Christ, under the banner or label of a church. And really, it's not that rare. It's really not that rare. People still do it all the time. People are always trying to import and and incorporate into the church or in the banner of preaching what is essentially worldly thought repackaged under the label of Christianity. What Paul says, he would never do that. He would never do that. And he's giving us here all the reasons why. 
He's been spelling it out for us why he makes a fundamental rejection of any admixture of any wisdom of men in his preaching. And he commits himself exclusively to what is revealed through the gospel of Christ, the word of God. Remember, we started to look at this last week. He says, first of all, the first reason why he would never abandon the exclusive message of the gospel and turn to the wisdom of men is because of the power of the cross. The word of the cross, he says, is followed to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That is, to some, it is folly and fairy tales and nothing more. And they hear it. Those who are perishing, he says, they hear it and they reject it as that. But to us who are being saved, it penetrates their hearts with power like nothing else. And Paul was committed to preaching this because he understood that only the Word of God has that kind of power. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing even to the very depths of our being Revealing the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Hebrews 4. Paul knew that if he were to abandon this and turn to eloquent words of wisdom and turn to clever uh, words of wisdom, as some translations say, not only would it render him useless, it would bring him under judgment as an unfaithful preacher. He might be esteemed before the world as more clever, more respectable, but it would be a waste of time because the message he would be preaching would be changing no one. So he says he's committed because of the power of the cross. It penetrates the hearts of those who believe. Secondly, he said he was committed to the exclusive message of the gospel because of the poverty of human wisdom. It's written... God said, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. In other words, God has declared war on human wisdom, on human thinking. And so to fill your mind or to fill your message with human wisdom or worldly wisdom is basically to encamp yourself with the enemy, he says. Where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? He's asking, where are the experts? Where are the scholars? Where have they gotten us in the world? Nowhere is the answer. God has exposed what the world calls wisdom in that after all these millennia, all these centuries, all the experts, all the philosophies, all the thinking, all the education, where has it gotten us? A few new gadgets and a lot more sinful. Man is as corrupt as he's ever been. He's as lost as he's ever been. He's as dark as he's ever been. And even in Paul's own day, that was evident. So Paul rejected all of it, not only as unnecessary, not only as unpowerful, but as contrary, contrary to the gospel. He'd never forsake the gospel for man's wisdom because that wisdom never got man anywhere. Well, today we come to a third point, a third reason why Paul wouldn't abandon the exclusive message of the gospel for the sake of worldly wisdom, and that's because of the plan 
in God's wisdom. He says in verse 21, since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So this is his third reason. It's the plan, or you might even say the pleasure of God. He didn't do it because because of what pleases God. God intended it to be this way. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me to improve on his plan. He doesn't ask us to. He doesn't want us to. God's ultimate plan, what ultimately pleases God, what he has ultimately ordained is that people come to know him through a message that's deemed foolish unsophisticated, unlearned, uneducated, he says. And Paul's talking about here, when he says all this, he's talking about very clearly the content, not the style of what he preaches. We'll go on in verse 22 to talk about how the Jews rejected the message of Christ crucified as foolishness. So when he talks about the foolishness of what's preached, he's talking about the content not the style. All this lament, the foolish preaching that takes place, there's always been too much of that. It's not primarily what Paul has in mind, though. He's not talking about poor preachers. He's not talking about bad communicators. He's not exalting those who lack preparation or lack the skills to stand up and proclaim the Word of God. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, We deliver the message of the cross, which fundamentally inverts the values of the world, which tells them that they are damned and sinners and destined for hell, which tells them that pursuing their own selfishness and pursuing their own self-exaltation is a pathway to destruction, which tells them that by, by seeking their own desires, they'll never be fulfilled. This, this value-inverting message of the cross, the content of that message, he says, which comes across to the world as foolishness. But he says it pleases God. This is what God takes delight in to expose all the foolishness of man by saving people by that message. In other words, Paul didn't see an option for adding to the gospel message his own wisdom. Because that would, in fact, detract from one of the main purposes and pleasures of God, which is to save people through a message which the world looks at as foolish. It would take away from what God's trying to do which ultimately is to expose all the uselessness of the world and to bring all glory to himself, to jealously pursue his own uh, name, his own holy name. It would set aside what God's trying to do. Too many men add their own wisdom because they see or they perceive the message of the cross is inadequate. It's inadequate, they think, 
to redeem men, inadequate to redeem homes, inadequate to redeem marriages, inadequate to redeem children, inadequate to redeem uh, the workplace or whatever it might be. It's inadequate for all of those things. And so they feel compelled to add something from the world, to take the thinking of the world, to repackage it in the name of Christ, to give it some Christian labels and maybe pepper in a few verses and then to deliver it in the banner of a church. And Paul says he'd never do that. That's not what God's about. He's about exposing the foolishness of the world and saving people, not through the mimic, mimicking of worldly schemes and not through the manipulation of worldly marketing and appeal, but through a foolish message that comes across as powerful to those who believe. Those who are being saved, he says. As a matter of fact, Paul goes on to talk about sort of the pretense of all those who reject the message of truth. And he basically shows that it's, it's not sincere. People who are hiding behind all their scoffing, hiding behind all of their rejection hiding behind all these things that they throw up as smokescreens, really, what they're rejecting is not the gospel, but what they're rejecting, he says, is, is their own unwillingness to let go of their sin. He says in verse 22, Jews demand signs. I mean, we know this is the case. If you read the gospels over and over again, we see them coming to Christ and wanting another sign. And when he did perform a sign... They would berate him as having done it by the power of a demon. Luke 11, he cast out a demon and his opponents come to him and says, well, he's casting out demons by the power of demons. He couldn't win for losing. In fact, if you have your Bibles, look with me at John 12, a very telling passage. John 12, verse 37. This is sort of a summary of the whole ministry of John It's given to us in John chapter 12 because that sort of rounds out the public ministry of John. John 13 goes into the upper room, the Last Supper, and really the final night of Christ's life before the crucifixion. So this is John's summary of how Jesus' ministry went with the Jews. He says in verse 37, Though He had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in Him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He's blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Why? Verse 43. Because they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. You want me to paraphrase that for you? They didn't want to seem foolish. They didn't want to look foolish. They didn't want to be one of these fanaticals. They didn't want to be one of these radicals. They didn't want to be one of these people 
who rejected the conventional wisdom. They still wanted the esteem of the people around them. And so they held back from the cross. They wouldn't accept it. I remember with much shame running around a hooligan on the streets of Pensacola, Florida. Me and my buddies hitting the clubs there. And I remember one night going down there and there's some people preaching the gospel on the streets and here we were running around and they were preaching the gospel to us and we we immediately mocked and ridiculed them and, and rejected them and scorned them in all kinds of ways in the loudest of voices. And then later on that night, I got in, we got into our truck, our SUV, we were headed back home, and every, everyone was still kind of laughing and yeah, yeah, and here I was in my seat, almost in a very distant way, realizing that I had really rejected those people, not because of what they were saying, but because I wanted to please all those guys around me. As a matter of fact, I realized I didn't even listen to what they said which is the case with so many unbelievers, virtually really every believer, unbeliever. Their objections to the gospel are not fundamentally intellectual. They're ethical. They don't like what it does. As a matter of fact, this is what Paul says back over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says in verse 22, the Jews um, demand signs the greeks seek wisdom but we preach christ crucified a stumbling block to the jews you know what that word stumbling block is scandalon is the word in greek you know what it means it means a trap it's literally literally what it meant originally it was a hole in the ground that you would uh, build and put something over so animals fell into it It was a trap scandalon came to take on other meaning, but that's essentially the way the world looks at the gospel. They, they look at the gospel and they imagine that they're free, they're running around, they're living their life, they're doing whatever they want, they're having a great time, and they look at the gospel as some narrow little hole that that's going to sort of get them in there and get its claws on them and trap them and bind them down. That's what they think of the gospel. What they don't realize is that the, what they're running around in is a prison cell. They're trapped in their own sin and their own condemnation and their own darkness. And what the gospel is, is a key and a door to freedom. And they don't see it. They don't see it. And so they make all kinds of excuses, all kinds of reasons why they don't want to go through that door. But really what they really want, they want to hold on to their darkness. They want to hold on to their sin. They want to hold on to their way of life. It's not really... The truth, because if they looked at the truth, they'd realize it's a door to freedom. If you're in your Bibles there, look at John chapter 3, because this is exactly what John tells us. John 3, verse 19. In fact, this comes, interestingly, right on the heels of this beloved verse, John three sixteen. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. And we've all memorized that. We might have used that. We've heard that proclaimed all the time. It's sad, though, that people stop there and don't go on reading because if they went on reading, they'd present the whole gospel. 
And the whole gospel says this, not only has God provided a savior for your sin, but your fundamental problem in verse 19, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and you love the darkness rather than the light because your deeds are evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come to the light lest his works should be exposed. See, this is what Paul's saying. He says, when I preach the gospel, I preach it knowing I just simply understand, he says, that people are going to reject it on pretense. They're going to reject it on pretense of some religious argument. They're going to reject it on pretense of some philosophical argument. But really, what's at the heart is they love their sin. Really, what's at the heart is they want to hold on to their sin. And Paul knew he wasn't going to change that. The only thing that's going to change that is the power of the gospel. Back over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says the Jews seek after signs. The Greeks or the, or, or the, uh, the non-Jews, we might say the Gentiles, they seek after wisdom, he says. They look after things which they think are intellectually respectable. Not sincere, though. It's not sincere seeking after the truth. It's not sincere looking after wisdom. It's really just a a pretense and a show, a way for them to justify their own lifestyle. Paul discovered this. Remember Acts 17? He was in Athens, and he realized, he says, all the Athenians... And foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. In other words, they weren't interested in eternal truth. They were interested in intellectual novelty. They just wanted to hear themselves talk. They wanted to see themselves cited by one another, quoted by one another. This is the reality of the world around you. They're throwing up intellectual smoke screens. They're throwing up religious arguments and debates, but really they're not. They're not sincere. See, the Scripture tells you, the Scripture tells you in Romans chapter 1 that what may be known of God is evident to the unbeliever. Let that sink into your brain for a second. What may be known of God is evident to the unbeliever. For God's glory is displayed all around them in the creation, Romans 1 tells us. But what do they do? They take that truth and they suppress it in unrighteousness. So in other words, the the unbeliever's problem is not a fundamental lack of information. It's an unwillingness to accept it. They take the truth and they suppress it in unrighteousness so that they can go on living in their sin. They call it foolishness. It doesn't meet up to their ideals. This was certainly true in Greek culture. I mean, it was at that point a a culture that had reached the pinnacle of anything that had ever been. And there was in their art and in their culture and in their literature and even in their religion, an exaltation of, guess what? The human and the human body. They had sculptures. They had gymnastic games. 
As a matter of fact, they would, they would have their games. There was a, a, a games in Athens and there were games in Corinth. And they would actually conduct these games mostly nude. And the reason they did that is because they wanted to, they wanted to exalt the human body. They were so focused on what they thought was the glory of the human and the human body and the human mind and the advancements. They were so focused on themselves. Someone would come along and say, well, first of all, you're foolish. Second of all, you're darkened. Thirdly, you're useless. Fourthly, you're condemned. They would think that's foolishness. Absolute foolishness. But Paul says to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Those who are called. He's not talking about the universal call. You understand there's a difference between the universal call. We go out there and we tell every person we can about the call of salvation. We speak to them. I speak to them when I travel each week, try to find someone to share the gospel with each day. I try to find someone that I can uh, sh- uh, be a, a light of, uh, of the truth to. We call uh, all the time, all around us, as many as we can to salvation. But that's not the, Paul, uh, the call that Paul's talking about. To those who are called... Christ becomes the power of God and the wisdom of God. Theologians call this the efficacious call. The call that is effective in the hearts of some. A call that comes into their hearts and enables them to see the truth and shed their darkness and shed their lies and shed their sin and shed all their misery. The, the, the call that comes and helps them to realize that the door in front of them, which is the gospel, is not a door into a prison, it's a door out of one. And so anyone who sees that, obviously, takes the door, right? That's what we mean when we say irresistible call. As the theologians sometimes say, God's call is an irresistible call. That when He calls you, when He so opens your mind and so opens your heart, no one, no one would ever reject that. He calls us and we come. That's why Romans 8.30 speaks about it as an unbreakable chain. Those who are called are justified. Those who are justified are sanctified. Those who are sanctified are glorified. See, the ones who are called are always and inevitably glorified in heaven. Once God sets His efficacious call on you, He's going to bring you all the way to salvation. That's what the point of Romans 8.30 is all about. So what Paul's saying is, he goes out there and he preaches this message... And he trusts that while many people are ridiculing him, while many people are thinking it's ridiculous, while many people are looking at him as naive and foolish, that someone is going to hear that message 
And it's going to penetrate into their heart and show them all the, expose to them all the foolishness of what they've been living under, and they will finally be saved. Further down in the chapter, he says in verse 30 that because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. New American Standard says it. By His doing, you're in Christ Jesus. That's exactly what happens. You preach this foolish message, and you don't mold it and make it in order to find the widest possible hearing by all those who would ultimately respect it. You preach it as God delivered it, trusting that He's going to call some by it. This was God's plan. And Paul wouldn't set aside God's plan for his own. That's why he preaches the gospel exclusively. And then one more reason. One more today, anyway. (laughs) The praise of God. Or the praise of God's wisdom. This is his, his conviction here, his desire to put this truth on display because he says in verse 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. Not that God, you understand what he's saying here. He's not saying God has foolishness. He's not saying there's some inherent foolishness in God. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. What he's saying is the most insignificant thought of God is more powerful than the deepest, most intricate, most profound insight of man. The most simple thought of God, the most minor thought of God is more profound, more worthy of your attention, more worthy of your praise, and more worthy of your study than the foremost discoveries of the deepest complexities of human thought. That's what he's saying. The most minor thought of God is greater than the deepest thing you'll ever think. By extension, the weakness of God is stronger than men. That which you think and you perceive as too simple, too uneducated, too naive, too weak, It's stronger than anything man has to give. Because man and all of his education and all of his sophistication and all of his man-made religions is never and will never be able to accomplish what the gospel can. Can never forgive sins. Can never wipe away guilt can never eradicate shame and can never reconcile you to God. This is why Paul preaches the gospel. Man's truest need is not a a more clever, a more rationalistic presentation because his objections really aren't because of the lack of cleverness. And his objections really aren't because of the lack of intellectual respectability, his rejections are insincere. He's really holding on to his darkness because he loves his sin. 
He's really ultimately in rebellion against God. So Paul wouldn't reject the simple and exclusive preaching of the gospel because to do so would be set aside the plan of God, but more importantly, it'd be set aside the praise of God's wisdom. It would be to say that there's something better, that there's something more powerful, there's something more wise than God's wisdom. Paul says that's ridiculous. The simplest, the most the most obvious truth of God is greater than any of man's thoughts. There's nothing that's ever originated with man that would ever improve on what God's revealed. So why? And why would you take worldly thought and repackage it? Why would you take the philosophies and the psychologies of the world? Why would you take the, the uh, worldly economics and politics or whatever it might be, why would you take all that stuff and repackage it under the name of Christianity and deliver it? Why? Unless you didn't trust the power of the gospel. Unless you didn't understand the poverty of human wisdom or the plan of God and how He's saving people. Unless you didn't understand the praise that God's jealous for, for His own wisdom. May we always be committed to His Word alone. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful this morning that You have given to us a wisdom that goes so far beyond anything in this world. It is more profound, it is more weighty, it's more worthy of our attention and our praise. And it's transformed our lives. So Lord, give us a boldness and give us a courage to stick to it to faithfully proclaim it and preach it. To faithfully share it with all of our loved ones. Come what may. Rejection and ridicule. Being labeled as naive and foolish. But we trust that you'll take that. To powerfully penetrate the hearts of those that you will. For the sake of your praise, honor, and glory. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.